Amen. You may take your seats. If the word cloud will come up, it'll be a reminder that we are in a Bible-believing church. Uh, we, in the Bible, we find the good news of the gospel, and it drives us, and it changes us, Lord willing. It makes us caring. It makes us friendly. It makes us missional. And uh, multi-generational means that we can worship together, whether we're young or old, uh, whether we get to be here for, for 22 years or whether we only get to be here for a year. Uh, we are excited that we can come together and meet with God in worship, which worship is all about. If you take your bulletin card, you'll see that that bulletin card has this, uh, this picture on it. And you can see that we are now beginning, and please take one home with you. This is a, for preparation. Uh, we are at the last Sunday of September, and we're dealing with the confusion uh, that, that, uh, that has come up into this world. There's a lot of confusion out there. We began this series with the gender conference to help people to know that there is no need for confusion. God made male and God made female, and he did it very good, and there isn't to be any more confusion beyond that. Uh, when you look through, uh, we are now picking up Instead of Ecclesiastes, we're in the book of Jude. And of course, the book of Jude is pretty short. Uh, if you turn in your Bibles, you'll see that it only fits on a page and a half. Uh, it only has 25 verses. And uh, Lord willing, over the next few weeks, that we will become more comfortable with the book of Jude, even though sometimes the words in it are not so comforting. But so let us now reverently attend to the public reading of God's inerrant, infallible word as was given in the originals. I want to begin at verse 17. That's our key verse for this series. But, rem but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the gospel or of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the key verse that I am drawing from each week. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus. In other words, what we're going to be dealing with here is not something that's new under the sun, if I could quote from Ecclesiastes. Uh, this stuff is not a surprise. The apostles warned them, he, they predicted them, they indicated that there was going to be some difficulties when you live the Christian life. Now Jude is written by, we believe, the half-brother of Jesus. As Paul brought out last week, there is a lot of uh, confirmation or there's a lot of confidence, is a better word, that this individual actually grew up in the household, knew Mary and Joseph very well, and uh, they didn't have a lot of respect for Jesus until, what do you think, having a perfect older brother? What shoes to follow? You could never win any argument. He was always right. Can you imagine that? Uh, Jude ends up having an epiphany. His eyes are, of faith are opened after the resurrection. This very person that he saw live this life, uh, who is, who, he was aware of a lot of the things about what Jesus had done. But now Jude is in a position of being one of the great people to testify about the Christ. So let me begin in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Wonderful opening. Wonderful opening. He identifies himself and he passes on this fact that, that when we're dealing with the saints, when we're dealing with Christians, mercy, peace, and love ought to be commonplace. That's what George and Lucy should be able to leave this place and remember those things. Mercy, peace, and love. Now he goes on to say, though, in verse 3, Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you for something else. 
Do you know what he's going to write about? You were introduced to it last week. I, I, am, I find it necessary to write appealing to you, you believers, you part of the covenant community, to contend for the faith, not against the faith, to contend for the faith or to fight for it as this faith was once delivered to the saints. And this is where our text kicks in. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. They're ungodly people. Now, the interesting thing is, this is why I took you to verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of the Lord. See, the apostles were already telling everybody in that first generation, hey, this isn't going to be easy. And there was warnings that were given. But when Jude writes, he says, I wanted to talk to you about all the nice stuff, but I needed to tell you about this, about what was happening when people crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. And then he begins to describe them. They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you jump down to verse 8, you'll find out. Yet in like manner, these same people also, they rely on their dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, they blaspheme the glorious ones. Verse 9, and when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord... Yahweh will have to rebuke you. Verse 10. But these blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! It ends at beginnings of verse 11. But I wanted to jump down to also verse, um, uh, to verse 16 to 19. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism so that they can gain an advantage. This is the text that we're looking at. Keep your Bibles open. Lord Jesus, I pray that you'll take the reading of the word, but especially the preaching of the word, and make it an effectual means of salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you, when you look here, you're going to find that this topic is not something new, but it is something rarely dealt with. As I was reading through the commentaries, many, many of the preachers thought that Jude was unknown to most church members. How many of you have memorized a verse in Jude? Well, I should raise my hand because my dad loved the book of Jude. Uh, in fact, he had a radio broadcast as a preacher, which was named In Defense of Truth. That's what every, every day I, when I would get up six days a week at, at six o'clock in the morning, we'd do a half hour broadcast about defending the faith. His newsletter article was called The Defender. Okay, what was he defending? He was defending the faith that had been once delivered unto the saints, once for all. It never had to be uh, repeated. Now, when you realize this, uh, the key verse there that, that I think some of you should be remembering is it, it says in verse 3, where he says, I found it necessary to write to you about uh, that you would earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. That was the old King James language that I learned. That was the one that flowed off my dad's lips. 
earnestly contending for the faith. Why isn't that so popular anymore? Maybe Christianity has evolved. Maybe we're just nice people now. You know, now with the internet, we've all become more civil. You know, we don't say anything bad about other people. You know, we're even better drivers now. We don't even use our fingers to tell people what we think about them. You know, we have just arrived at sanctification, right? Uh, the, the issue here is that um, people have not gotten there. And as it was in the first century, uh, I mean, Jesus ascended to heaven ba basically in A.D. 33. And most people believe that Jude wrote these things right after 2 Peter. Uh, but he could have written them a little bit earlier. We're not exactly sure of the date, but at least it was 15 years after the ascension. Maybe up to 25 years. Jude ends up writing this, and that, and that early population group, they were dealing with a lot of frustration because something had crept in to their covenant communities. By way of introduction, I think of the, the illustration of the virus. Everybody's aware of the virus. You know, our president just recently said that it, there's no more pandemic. I hope that's true. It's, it's interesting what makes it this or what makes it that. You know, in New York now, you can not have to do what they told you you had to do recently because of all these other things. Now you can go on ships and you don't have to even wear masks. It's pretty amazing how everything was so important and now it's not so important. But the idea of the virus is what I wanted to use as an illustration. How does a virus reach you? When you think about that for a moment, it's because somebody is passing the germs on to you. And I remember in my 12 years here as the pastor, I, I have found that some people have come up with a great excuse to not do nursery. Because they believe that if they do nursery, that they will receive more than a blessing. They will receive those little germs that get passed on to them by the other little kids who get their germs from other little kids that they do school with. It's interesting how we realize how things are passed on. And in Canada, some of my relatives, they used to forsake the assembling of themselves together for worship. Why? Because the government told them that they should and because they were told that they shouldn't assemble because then they wouldn't get people sick. And especially they shouldn't sing because when you open your mouth and you open it and you sing it out loud, you shoot your germs farther. I use that as an illustration to you. What is Jude talking about that has crept into the church? I can tell you it did not come through the air vents. What is he talking about? The key word here is apostasy. There is this awful thing that has crept into the church, and it just didn't get here because of residual effects. It came because somebody brought it in with them. And it wasn't because it was on their skin, and it wasn't because it was just in their minds, but it was communicated through their life and their lips. Heresy and apostasy is not something that is, that is non-animate. It gets to you by way of your contact with other people. Now, that's an interesting... Apostasy is the rejection of Christ by one who has been a Christian. Now, that sounds like somebody lost their salvation. 
but it's really not. Let me explain it to you like this. Uh, let me make you feel like you're smart. The word apostle sounds like apostate, right? It has a lot of the same letters. Do you know what the word apostle means? Give me a chance to, to be bold. You can speak it out. It means a sent one. Okay, I know that that sounds overly simplified, but when God sent out the apostles, when he gives the great commission and he empowers them, you shall receive power and the, wit and the spirit of God is going to come upon you and you'll be my witnesses out there. He, he ordained special guys to go and they're sent out with power. Now, we would all argue that an apostle was one who met the resurrected Christ as well. That's what uh, the apostle Paul ends up claiming as his apostleship. In Acts 9, he, had, he did not get to see the resurrected Christ until later, and Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and, and introduced him. There are a lot of things that are cool about it. But an apostle in its root elementary vocabulary means a sent one. One that is sent from a, from a community, they're sent out, and they're sent out with power, with a mission. Okay? But what an apost, apost, uh, apostasy is, or an apostate, is somebody that has left. Not somebody that's been sent, but somebody that's left the faith. Now, of course, in, in Corinthians, you can find out that when people have left, it's because they were never really with us. They left because they, they proved their reprobation. But when you look at an apostate, it's somebody that has been a part of the crew, somebody that's inside, an insider, that has actually left. Now, the thing that's scary about this particular text is that the insiders haven't actually left the church yet. These people who are a part of the covenant community or the religious community, they had professed certain things, but now they don't. And this is why it's so subtle and scary. In 2 Peter... Peter, the apostle, writes about the same thing. If you'll read 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it almost sounds the same as Jude. They collaborated. In fact, some people argue that maybe Peter got it from Jude, but more likely Jude got it from Peter. But Peter's second epistle, he writes, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves destruction swiftly. And sadly, verse 2, and many, this is what I don't, I wish this verse wasn't there, and many will follow them. Many will follow their sensuality, their feel-goodness, their, their therapeutic narcissism. Many will buy into it. And because of that apostasy, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Now, you may not understand all of these things, but in this particular text, I want to highlight nine symptoms that Jude gives in his 24, 25 verses. I have to walk through it fairly quick as we come to the table in just a few moments. So uh, we'll pick more of it up as we go. But uh, the, the, uh, the first point that I want to make sure you realize is that this heresy is not from God. Like I said, it didn't come through the air vents, and it didn't come because Stanley Steamer cleaned our carpets and left it here. No, the apostasy comes by people. It maybe even came in by you. Apostasy is hard for us to identify because many of us are not skilled at it. We think we need to leave it up to other people to figure it out for us. So sometimes we might go to the pastor. But I think most of us in the 21st century, 
try to just do it on our own. Or you'll actually go to Google first. Some of you at your Bible study groups, you'll try to figure it out yourself too. You'll try to come to a conclusion and you'll think that you've arrived because you think so. It's really dangerous if you cannot discern the deception. So I believe Jude's description of the deception is here with nine symptoms. If you follow me along, you'll be able to see them very quickly and we'll highlight them more in the weeks to come. But the first is that the apostasy mishandles God's grace. The apostasy will mishandle God's grace. In other words, they don't understand grace. And maybe you don't understand grace, so let me explain it a little bit. Grace does not exist in this world unless something else exists. Do you know what has to uh, exist in order for grace to exist? Justice. And you could say sin is a part of that, but justice has to be existent in order for grace to come to pass. Justice is when you get what you deserve. But grace is when you don't get what you deserve. Now, the middle place in there is mercy where you... Um, let, me, let me put it this way. That was mercy. Grace is when you... Grace is when you get something that you don't deserve. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. Let me repeat that for you real quick and slow. Justice is when you get what you deserve. If you sin, you get punished. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. So mercy says you might deserve it, but you're not getting it right now. So when you ask for mercy, you're asking usually for a delay. Don't give it to me. Please like when, when the policeman pulls you over because you're speeding, you really want mercy. You don't want justice. Okay? But grace is not just the absence of you not getting it. Grace is when you get something good in its place. It'd be like the policeman coming over and instead of giving you a ticket, he gives you a $100 bill. You didn't deserve it and you would be surprised because grace is supposed to surprise you. That's why it's called amazing grace. Because you don't deserve it, and you never will deserve it. These apostasy doesn't understand grace. They think that when God lets you have space, when God still showers the rain upon the just and the unjust, they basically said, ha, God is, is uh, he's just a nice God. And, you know, they end up convincing themselves that if there is even a God out there, then, my goodness, we, we can... We don't have to worry about it. And they can start quoting how many people. You can do the same thing. People that have done wrong. People that have been nasty. People that have been blasphemous. And guess what? They haven't got what they deserved yet. Now, I know you might need to confess before you come to communion that you tried to help God out to give them what they deserved. No, vengeance is his, saith the Lord. Um, that's why we don't do that. But when you think about it, the mishandling of grace. And instead of recognizing that you're going to meet with God one day to give an account when the role is called up yonder, they abuse grace and they have license. Basically, they can do whatever they want. And this comes into the sexual arena. Does anybody in our culture have any boundaries on sex? Maybe I should ask it a little bit more personally. Do you? Can unmarried people just go ahead and have sex at your house? Does it matter anymore? Can you just, 
well, I like this person, or, you know, we just hooked up someplace. When you watch TV shows, you see people hop in bed all the time, and guess what? They're never married. And guess what? They never seem to have any immediate consequences, although they always do have awkward moments. It makes for a good TV show or movie. But I want you to realize that when you mishandle God's grace, it'll just lead into more and more sin. Because you think you get away with it because you think you deserve it or that it's okay. The second thing I want to quickly move on is apostasy dis diminishes Christ's deity. If you look at both Peter and, and Jude, they both say that people deny the Savior. They deny the Master. They, they, they know about Jesus. These people were, as I said, only two or three uh, decades from having Jesus walking around speaking. Some of them might have actually heard him with their own ears. They might have even been there, when, and they might have even voiced, crucify him, crucify him, crucify! And these people are saying, that Jesus guy, he's a nice guy. He's a teacher. He was a good example for us not to go up against the government. You know, they would come up with all of their sayings. They're denying the, the fundamental thing that makes Jesus different from all of us. Do you even know what makes Jesus different from us? He's God! <laughs> okay, that's what makes him different. If I was put on a cross, maybe that one, if you nailed me up there and I, I could die and I could bleed and I could say all those same things, but my death wouldn't be any meaningful to you, It'd be gross. Hopefully you wouldn't be happy. Some have tried to crucify me. My point is, Jesus went to the cross, and his crucifixion meant something because he was God. He was God the Son who was going to mediate for God to God the Father because the wrath of the Father was going to be poured out. And it says, greater love had no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus said, I'm laying my life down for you. He says, I have an affection, a relationship with you. I'm going to call you to myself. And if you're inside of Christ, there is no more condemnation. But Jesus is the only one who could die for your sins. Nobody else. Nobody. If you don't get the deity of Christ, then you don't get Christ. Apostasy will always bring Jesus down to be like us. To be like a brother. To be like a, just a, one of the guys. You know, if you watch the Da Vinci Code or some of these others, the secular world is always trying to make Jesus look effeminate. They're always trying to make Jesus look like he was lusting. They'll even try to tell you that he had sex with all these other people. Why do they do that? Because they are part of the apostasy that denies the deity of the master. And if Jesus isn't Lord, then what is he? As C.S. Lewis said, he's either a liar or a lunatic. Is he your Lord? The third thing that apostasy does, it defiles the human body. The Bible says that they yielded to earthly, their earthly flesh. Now, this talks about sensuality and passion. I'm not going to get into all the ways that you can defile your flesh. But you all have flesh in here. What do you do with your bodies? I hope you keep them clean. That'd be nice. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians, he wrote to the believers there and he said, what, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you 
And you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with this physical flesh. In Colossians, they had a big temptation. The same kind of heresy and apostasy was creeping in. And people were denying their flesh. And they were saying, we're not going to eat. We're not going to drink. We're going to just suffer, suffer, suffer. And they think that they're going to be more righteous because they suffered and they put their body into these concourses. Or if I remember going to Italy one time and climbing the Spanish steps, and some people used to tell us that we would be more righteous if you climb the steps on your knees. Have you even done that? It hurts. It's stone steps. And you're not supposed to wear knee pads. By the time you get to the top, you're crying out, help me, get an ambulance. Beating up your body, defiling your flesh with sexual activity that is out of the bounds of marriage. Whatever you do with your flesh, whether you put drugs into it or, or other things, it is bad news. Daniel set a wonderful example in Daniel chapter 1. He said he committed not to defile himself with whatever the government was pushing. He says, I want to be true to the Lord. God's going to take care of me. And he trusted in him. The fourth thing, apostasy rejects the institutional authority. Basically, the people rejected authority. They moved into chaos. They basically, um, they valued their own agendas over everybody else's. Now, there are, I call it institutional authority because I believe there's three institutions that God ordained from the beginning. The home, the church, and the state. And I do believe that God has delegated authority to each one. And how do I know that? Is look at the titles that scripture gives them. In the home, who's in charge in the home? Mom and dad, you could call it father and mother. We just quoted it in the Ten Commandments. We know that God is, is ordained families, traditional families. The reason they're ordained that way is because God set it up that way. And when the world you know, denies all that, they reject the institutional authority. And they are redefining what family is. All these kind of things are to be expected with apostasy. The home, the church. Who's the leaders in the church? What are the titles that you know about people in the church? New Testament era, do you know any names? What are the titles? Deacons, pastors, evangelists, apostles, prophets. These are things that you'll find in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12 lists a whole bunch of them. The organization for the church was, was expanded with new terms and new authorities and even the apostles being sent ones. It's pretty neat. But the people today that are in apostasy reject this authority. And the same is true for the state. They don't recognize the value of order. And if you're into chaos, you will reap the consequences. The fifth thing is, is the apostasy blasphemies, blasphemies spiritual forces. In this particular text, when you read through it, uh, he gives the illustration. Jude says, you remember how Michael the archangel was dealing with Satan, Lucifer, uh, who was also another archangel, and they were doing battle over uh, the body of Moses. Now, what does that tell you? It all isn't hunky-dory, even in the spiritual realms. But what in the world is he talking about blasphemy? I believe that apostasy comes in and it gives the wrong credit to spiritual things. Now, if I were to ask you uh, about um, witches and demons, if you would tell me about it, if I were to say, could you name me a witch? I'm sure you all can. If you watch TV, I mean, you could say Sabrina. You know, twitch your nose. You know, Bewitched is that TV show. Or some of you might watch that uh, one called Charmed. Or, or <clears throat> I know, everybody has heard of Harry P 
potter? Whenever you look at these things, what do you find out about them? They have some awesome Halloween effects, right? They have ghouls and ghosts, and they have shadows and darkness, and they have spells and judgments, and they can appear here and they can do that, and it's pretty wow. They can even ride brooms. Now, what is, what is going on here? How many of you want to ride a broom? The point I'm making is that they have given credit to the wrong spiritual forces. Blasphemy against God is usually when you claim that God is guilty of error. It's when you attribute or you give uh, credits where credit is not due. So if you find evil things and you attribute them to God, that's blasphemy. And if you find good things and you attribute them to Satan, that's blasphemy. And what he's saying here, when you're dealing with the spiritual forces, many people don't know how to do it. And so they give credit where credit is not due. And he says apostasy does this. It messes things up. And we can get more into that in the details later. Um, number six, apostasy relies on your animal instincts. Now, I don't believe that you are animals. So I don't like making this point. But if you look at the text and you read it for you there, he says, in like manner, these people also rely on their dreams. They defile their flesh. They reject authority. They blaspheme the glorious ones. And then in, in, as it goes down in verse 10, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. They rely on their instincts. I have a dog that is 17 plus years old. At least we think so. Our cute little Sandy, I come into the house and Sandy doesn't come and, and greet me anymore. Sandy doesn't know I'm there. I can yell, Sandy! And she sleeps soundly. Don't you wish you could sleep like that? Especially if your spouse snores. But just think about it. This little dog has been with us for all this, but the dog is so alert when it comes to food. I'm telling you, my wife can walk into the kitchen and it's a certain time of the day and that dog is there. And I don't know how the dog knows. It could be the dog knows because of the nose. That's true. Good pun. Uh, there's some instincts. There's some patterns. Now, when people end up getting into instincts, then they're no longer leaning on the truth. They're no longer looking to God for direction. They're doing what their lust pulls them it's almost like a magnet that says, I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to keep going because that's where my heart wants to take me. When you listen to people talk about their, their sexual fantasies or, or what, what group, even what political party they're involved in, it's usually not based all on reason. It seems to be like, where's the wind blowing and that's where I want to blow. Now, the next thing is, is the apostasy number seven. Apostasy generates malcontent. People that are connected with apostasy are not content. Remember what the 10th commandment is? Thou shalt not covet. What is coveting? Covening is wanting more of what somebody else has. And the 10 commandments, God finishes up by saying, be content. I'll take care of you. Don't be a worry ward. That's why he says in Philippians 4, don't be anxious about things. Talk to me about it. If you need that or if you want that, just like I'm asking you to, to, to ask for God to provide us a buyer, somebody that will give an offer for my house. We need it. So we're asking, do I need to worry? I really shouldn't. Apostasy generates a malcontent. 
when you start to feel like God's not big enough to take care of it, when you feel like it's overwhelming you, then you start to pick everything apart. It's so sad. Uh, I want to get into that a little bit more, but you're so quick to find fault. And guess what? You are quick to tell other people to find fault. Oh, that preacher went over time again. When is he ever going to learn? And then two people now say that he went over time. And when those two people tell two people, then all everybody knows. And before long, everybody in Rehoboth knows that this service goes too long. Number eight, apostasy utilizes manipulation. Oh, no, Christians would never manipulate. If you look at the text, you're finding that they are far too willing to flatter for one reason. They will come and say how wonderful you look. They will, wonder, they will come and tell you how great it is that you're doing this or that, or you just look spectacular today. Or they'll just compliment you, and they'll, they'll be trying to... What they're basically doing is they're coming alongside of you, and they're forcing you into the trap. They're luring you in. And the Bible says that they use flattery, they use the gift of, of gab in order to make people like them and to get people to do their bidding. They do it for their advantage. Have you ever done that? You have a project at church and you need help. It's like when we were trying to clean up the sanctuary or something and, and we were modifying, we want to see if some folks would like to do some vacuuming once a month. Do you think you and your spouse would like to come and do that? The pay is great, zero. Don't you love the idea of getting exercised by pushing the vacuum cleaner all around the church building? Okay, let me, let me entice you a little differently. This is a new ministry, it's called prayer walking. If you would just follow this little machine around, it will take you everywhere you need to go. And if you see something in front of you that shouldn't be there, just run over it. And then you can pray for the person who left it there that they wouldn't get what they deserved. You know, all this, I, we, could, we could make this so much more enticing. I could use manipulation to take you down a path of apostasy too. Because let me tell you, God's way isn't always the easiest way. How many of you like to be told, thou shalt not commit adultery? How many of you like to be told, don't steal? How many like you to be told, don't bear a false witness? Don't do it. Most of us would rather have our own situational ethics. We'd like to adjust it and modify it. We just want to have our therapeutic feeling of, oh, it's all, I'm okay, you're okay. We want to join with Barney. I love you, you love me. You know, or, or, or Mr. Rogers, won't you be my neighbor? You know, we'll just get along. It's so subtle when people are manipulative. Because when they come in with false doctrine, with heresy, they'll bring a lot of truth in with a little error. It's almost like they'll bring you a glass of lemonade with a little bit of arsenic. Here, have a drink. It tastes good while you still can taste do you understand? This is how apostasy creeps in. I'm not going to be able to give my illustrations that I want. The last one is apostasy fosters division. And this is kind of interesting. I wanted to get up here a big whiteboard and draw a big circle. And the big circle is going to be the church. And inside the church is a great place for every Christian to be. In other, in other words, the only reason that you are a Christian is because you have Christ in you. So if you have Christ in you, you're in the big circle. And if I had a Venn diagram, it's awesome to have a Venn diagram. Everybody's in the big circle. Put all, all of you as little dots in the big circle. Now, in, in math class, we talked about the intersection of, of uh, two circles. 
Now, if you have a circle and it intersects, intersects with another circle, there's usually a place in the middle that looks like a, uh, like a kind of like, um, I guess it's pointed on one side, pointed on the other curve. But that intersection means that you got, you're in one circle and you're also in the other circle. It's almost like you're bipolar. Okay? That you're in both. The thing that's scary is not that people have groups in the church. My goodness, we're promoting community groups. We have three now, and we'd love to double that to six uh, by the beginning of spring next year. It'd be awesome for 50% of our church to be in a community group. It's worth your time. You'll find that there's a blessing to it. But community groups are not circles that are outside of the circle. They are circles that are inside the big circle. What apostasy does is it creates a circle that's outside the circle, a competing circle. And the thing is, when apostates come in and they try to get your ear, they will try to get you to leave from the big circle and enter into their little circle, their friend group. It's so subtle. Have you ever been seduced? Have you ever been recruited? This is the worst part. Have you ever done the recruiting? This is what happens. And Jude is being concerned about what happens. When you read the text, you're going to find out about it. Now, I want to just do three applications. Oh, this is awful. I have no more time. Um, the three applications are about what you think, what you feel, and what you do. I'm going to quickly say it that uh, the, the, the three actions you'll find in verse 3 and 17 and verse 20. In verse 3, it says one of the actions that you need to do against apostasy is contend for the faith. The second thing, if you go down to verse 17, he says you need to remember what you've been taught. Okay? Verse 17, remember what you've been taught. And the third point there was that you need, to, um, you need to build yourself up in the holy faith. And that's an interesting construction, and we'll get to a little bit more on that. But those are the three antidotes to apostasy. You need to contend, you need to remember, and you need to be built up in the faith. Now, I want to quickly just give a couple of applications because this really seemed to hit home for me. Music, money, and doctrine. Follow with me very, very quickly, if you would. With music, it is, this is the easiest to spot because this is where you can get groups that are competing groups instead of subgroups. You can get, go around and you can find people that like the music you have or don't like the music that's here. You can find all kinds of things. Let me just put it this way. It is either an issue of pride, privilege, or preference. If your music is a thing of pride, is you say, I know what is best. It's all about what you decide. If you do, if it's about privilege, then, then you're going to say, well, this is what good music looks like. And if it's about preference, you can say, this is, um, this is the most important. And some people will even leave a church because they don't get the music they want. Is that a group that's a subgroup or is that a competing group? And are you the leader of the band that, that ends up creating a new group that says, I'm not happy, when in reality... We're supposed to be brought together by music. Quickly on money. Money is another one that preachers seem to never want to talk about. At least this one doesn't love it. Um, money reveals three issues. Okay? It reveals it's, it's the money that, that hasn't been given. It's the money that has been given. And it's the money that's supposed to go someplace. So the three issues about money is why aren't you giving it? Why aren't you giving enough? And so when, when we get onto that topic, does that make you feel good? Did you give your tithe this week? Oh, pastor, I did this. I sent it over this. Oh, I only give once a month. Oh, I give once a year. You see, you end up getting defensive. When, when apostates come in, they're going to tell you that you have to do this and you have to do this. The issue of who controls the money. 
When we have the budget coming up, uh, it's going to be interesting. All the competing interests. Are we going to have money for the men's ministry, for the women's ministry, for children's ministry? Are we going to have money for an assistant pastor? Who makes those decisions? Do you? Sometimes you may get upset, and that's where the apostasy creeps in, because you think that you should make it, or you think that the majority should make it, and you start imposing your will. The other thing about money is who should get it? This is a little bit awkward for me. You know, if, if, if I'm one of the few people that get paid here, is should you pay him more, or should you pay him less? Should it be based on his performance? Should the performance be based on how many seats, uh, we used to say in seminary, how many nickels and how many noses? It's a good preacher if you've got lots of people. must be a bad preacher if you don't. And so therefore you measure all these things. It's so interesting how money becomes one of those things that people have crept in unawares and created division and war over. The other one about doctrine. This is maybe the hardest for me. I love doctrine. I love how Titus talks about teach sound doctrine, how Timothy warns people that they ought to study the scriptures and be sound in 2 Timothy 2.15. He says, you ought to know the word of God. But doctrine has become so divisive. And if it's divisive, that's one of the tools of apostasy. Think about this for a moment. Doctrine can hit you in three different ways. It can be the issue of apathy, the issue of idolatry, or the issue of devaluing the importance of fidelity. Now, let me touch on those very quickly, the issue of apathy. There are some of you that have gotten to the place with doctrine that you just say, ah, who cares? I've been tempted. I've been here not as long as George and Lucy. But some of you don't have a clue what doctrine I teach. And I'm like, I'm a defender of these things. These are important and I can't even get my kids sometimes to do to believe exactly the way I believe. It's like, ah! And when you guys start teaching things that are not in accord with sound doctrine, it makes me like, ah! Sometimes you do. Sometimes I do. My goal is to study to show myself approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, who can rightly handle the word of God. 2 Timothy 2.15, that should be true for you. Apathy is not going to cut it. Don't go through this life and say, who cares? Secondly, it's the idolatry. Some people have gotten to the point with doctrine that you believe that your way is the only way, and if you don't believe everything like I do, you're going to hell. Probably not too many in here are that way. I used to be. If you didn't believe in, the, in, in the eternal security, you're gone. You just checked yourself off. You know, it's, it's kind of like, I, I don't want us to be so divisive that we can't even get along. Do you know in the word cloud, the reason we do it that way is to be able to let you all see what drives us together, what puts us in the big circle is the Bible, is the gospel. Okay, if you get the Bible and the gospel right, then together we should be able to spot these heresies that are creeping in by people. Sometimes your friends, sometimes your relatives, sometimes your neighbor, maybe somebody sitting next to you. Doctrine can be turned into idolatry where you worship it more than you worship Christ. But the thing that I don't want you to miss in doctrine is that I don't want you to devalue the fidelity to it. Scripture, all scripture is God-breathed and it is profitable for doctrine. Don't run away from doctrine. Run to it and be firm in the word of God. And that's why you know you're standing on solid ground. Listen, I finished with the thought that he says, earnestly contend for the faith. What is the faith? 
He says you're supposed to be rooted and built up in the faith. Uh, at the beginning and the end of Jude, he's talking about the faith. Where does the faith come from and what is the faith? The communion table introduces us to the faith. It is. Because the faith is not that we are good. The faith is, is that we are sinners. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The faith is, is that God laid on Christ our iniquity. Isaiah 53. And, and our, he was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement that was due upon us to get our peace with God was laid upon him. And by his stripes alone, we are healed. You know about the faith. And all of you who have had the faith delivered unto you, somebody with beautiful feet, Romans 10, who brought you the good news and told you that you can't save yourself, but Jesus can save you. He can save to the uttermost all who call upon his name. That's the faith. It was once delivered. I often will say that Jesus delivered it from Hebrews chapter 1. He is the exact reputation of God. He shows up on this earth. He tells us what a righteous life is, and then he gives passive obedience to the law. He submits to death because he took sin on. He who knew no sin became sin that we might get his righteousness, the transference of our sin upon him and his righteous record on us. That is the faith. And that's why Galatians 2.20 says it so well, if you could bring it up. Galatians 2.20, for I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I live in this world. And the life that I now live in this, in this 21st century, I live by, help me out, the faith of the Son of God, of the deity, of the God-man. He loved me. He gave himself for me. He washed me with the regeneration. And that is why I can, uh, Philippians 3, verse 13, I can press on to the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus and leave the rest behind. My encouragement to you today is spot apostasy. Let us pray if the elders would get into place. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you have given us, you have given us the book of Jude. You've told us not just to be mamby-pamby. You've told us to be kind. But like a good soldier, he, he doesn't need to use his weapon if he does a good job of protecting without it. Lord, if he holds, the, holds firm, if he earnestly occupies. Lord, I pray that you would bless this church, that we would be free of apostasy, that you would, um, not that you would keep all of us that are potential apostasers, apostasizers to show up, but that you would help us to have discernment about what is the truth, that we would never be deceived by the evil one, even if he goes about as a roaring lion or if he comes as an angel of light. Lord, I pray that as false teachers do come in, and many of them will creep in, they'll come in and take their place, and they'll let their falseness, their, their cyanide, uh, their poisoning be, be put into our community, a little by little. Lord, I pray that you would deliver us from apostasy by helping us to earnestly contend for the faith, to remember, even as we do in the communion service, and then to be able to be built up and experience what it means to be mature in Christ. Bless your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.